On the Record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk. Let's have a quick look at what's making the front pages of the Sunday newspapers, first of all. Uh, we'll start with the Business Post. National emergency safety warnings from buildings are. Uh, Ireland's building regulator has claimed that the country faces a national emergency of construction regulation, repeatedly warning that it faces severe staff shortages exacerbated by the MICA crisis and the Grenfell Tower disaster. Uh, the National Building Control and Market Surveillance Office, the snappily titled NBCO, um, which coordinates the oversight of construction in Ireland, has privately told bosses that it's been understaffed since its inception and that its lack of resources have created a situation which is not sustainable. The regulator also warned of increasing political pressure coming from the Department of Housing after the MICA crisis and the publication of a report on Grenfell which killed 72 people in London in 2017 and has led to a UK-wide review of building regulations. Um, Also on the front page of the Business Post, the three government government leaders, we are told, uh, have reached a consensus that Ireland's triple lock mechanism for peacekeeping missions is no longer sustainable and needs to go. Leo Varadkar and Michal Martin have both told the Business Post that the triple lock, which requires government, Dáil and UN backing for any deployment of Defence Forces personnel, should be abandoned in its current format. Varadkar said, Fine Gael doesn't want to apply to join NATO but we do want to end the triple lock. Interesting that he felt the need to put that disclaimer into his comments about the triple lock, that we're not joining NATO, uh, saying it almost as if it was on the forefront of his mind. Um, we move on. The front page of the Mail on Sunday. Gardaí, we need new anti-far-right laws. Uh, Gardaí have urged a silent, Justice Minister Simon Harris, um, that's their words, to give the force more powers to police right-wing protests as a matter of urgency. It comes amid major concerns among senior officers that bespoke legislation uh, is needed to tackle the increasingly violent standoffs with extremist groups. Security sources told the Mail on Sunday that Gardaí will be forced to move to dismantle the blockade erected outside an accommodation centre for asylum seekers in Clare after locals rejected government pleas to temporarily stand down their protest. Um, The front page of the Sunday Times has a somewhat similar take in its main story from John Mooney and others. Uh, The blockade of a direct provision centre in rural Clare has now become the focal point for anti-immigration activists and far-right extremists around the world we're told there Extremists in Britain, Europe and the United States have begun sharing footage and content about the protest at the McGowan House Hotel on social media platforms and the messaging app Telegram using an assortment of hashtags to amplify the issue. The blockade there began on Monday, was continuing yesterday. Information by the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, which is a London-based think tank which monitors the activities of far-right activists online, and that shows how details and updates on the protest are being shared by numerous right-wing groups and mainstream and fringe analysts. One analyst, Kieran O'Connor, um, says that the, pro- the protest outside the former hotel has become an important one for the far right, not just in Ireland, uh, but also abroad. Uh, and also, an interesting sidebar story uh, on the Sunday Times, uh, ChatGPT has passed Leaving Cert Honours English, uh, and not just passed it, but with flying colours. Um, the Sunday Times fed questions from both of the exam papers for 2022 into the online programme uh, before the responses, which were generated within a matter of seconds, were marked by a current official Leaving Cert examiner. Across both papers, ChatGPT uh, (laughs) achieved an official mark of 77%, a B2 under the old system, now termed a H3. Uh, And separately, English teacher Conor Murphy has expressed serious concerns about the pressures that AI will place on teachers in years to come. He added that in the hands of a capable student, there will be nothing to stop the AI from achieving a top grade. Uh, And finally for now, uh, the Sunday Independent. Uh, the headline there states to look again at ships for housing refugees. And I think again is the operative word because it says 
that the government rejected offers of thousands of beds to accommodate refugees last year in a move that it's now being forced to revisit as the migration crisis worsens. The Sunday Independent can reveal details of how cruise ships and other vessels were repeatedly offered to the government last year in order to house tens of thousands of refugees fleeing war in Ukraine. All of the proposals were examined and ultimately rejected by officials within the Departments of Equality and Transport, but they're now being forced to revisit the idea of using floating accommodation amidst an unprecedented migrant housing crisis. The newspaper can also reveal half of the nearly 200 private and state properties offered to a special unit set up within the Taoiseach's office to deliver refugee accommodation have either been withdrawn or deemed not suitable. Only five are currently being refurbished for use. Five out of nearly 200 private and state properties offered to them. That is your tour of what's making the front pages of the papers this morning. Join the studio to discuss those stories and more by Adrian Sweeney, who's director of Paris Court Springs Health Farm and a former newsreader here at News Talk, and also by John Cunningham, who's a former chair of the Irish Immigrant Council of Ireland and a relationship manager with Morgan McKinley. Uh, thank you both very much for joining me this morning. Um, John, I'll start with yourself uh, and we'll start with the ongoing coverage of what's going on in Inch, because in truth, it's very difficult almost to know where to start because there is so much coverage of it uh, across the papers about the impact locally and about some of the uh, implications that it might carry nationally and indeed um, internationally. Um, where do you want to start? What jumped out for you in the papers this morning? Well, I think, first of all, it's absolutely clear this is a major strategic issue for Ireland and for the government. I think Inch is a microcosm of a huge number of issues regarding racism, attitudes towards migrants and indeed that conversation you touched on with regard to things like the use of boats and accommodation. So I think that 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 at the moment what strikes me is that what's really required is an absolutely connected, joined up strategic thinking from the government with regard to these, these issues. Do you think that's there right now? No, I don't. I think that there's a, a cross responsibility with regard to the Department of Justice. You've got Roderick O'Gorman with regard to integration and, and young people, mm. the Department of the Taoiseach. You know, when you consider where we're at now, and again, it's really interesting to go through all the papers. And in every paper, there's at least two or three different references to the issue. And Inch has become that sort of, I mean, we were making the commentary earlier on uh, that you know, the, the Inch protest is, is actually very small. There's a small number of people participating, but it has been absolutely accentuated both nationally and globally. And it's giving all of the social media platforms that are supporting uh, far-right uh, uh, commentary, the uh, opportunity to row in and make what can only be seen as in kind of incendiary comments with regard to the issue. Okay. So I think that that interconnected cross-government approach has to be engaged mm. with and they have to get it right. Do you think that there's any defence for the government now that we're almost 15 months into the Ukraine crisis with the numbers that that's resulted in coming to the country? Obviously, the government is going to have been firefighting for so long that it's always going to be crisis response. We've got this many people coming and we need to find housing for this many as a very immediate thing that they're so focused on delivering in the here and now that they haven't had a chance to try and figure out the big picture and to develop a more coordinated response. Is that defensible this far in? It's not defensible because ultimately what that's demonstrating, which seems to me to be a a problem across all elements of government is it's firefighting and it's reactive. Where is the strategic thinking? And it's all well and good saying, weren't we fantastic to bring in 100,000 Ukrainian refugees? If there's some of them living in tents in the street or living down by the canal in a one-man tent, that's not acceptable. So somebody somewhere has to stand back and take a strategic view and make proper, strong decisions. I mean, that issue, and I'm sure you'll come to the issue of the the boats, Okay, Everything needs to be considered. Everything needs to be considered right now because what's happening at the moment is just not acceptable. And my only concern with regard to that temporary issue of the boats is that we'll end up with something like we started with direct provision 15 years ago, which was a temporary solution that's become a permanent problem. And unless somebody is standing back and looking at this strategically, we're going to end up with even worse more compounded problems. Mm. Um, somebody's already been in touch on Twitter, by the way, using the hashtag on the record NT to take issue with uh, 
um, the way in which we characterised one of the front page stories, they're saying that it's actually supposed to be anti-illegal immigration. And of course, uh, there is no such thing as illegal immigration until somebody's uh, application for asylum has actually been processed. So people who are here are not here illegally until such time as those claims have actually been uh, assessed. Um, Adrian, good morning to you and thank you very much for coming in. Uh, again, there, there's so much coverage on the broader topic, not just of Inch. There is some breaking news from Inch, by the way, which will bring you in just a couple of minutes, but also about the broader question of the government's handling of, of um, asylum application and the likes. Uh, what jumps out for you from all this morning's coverage? I think Inch is... Um the heat on a magnifying glass in a situation with immigration whereby you know it is such a small protest but it has uh, it really uh, it, it really symbolises something a lot bigger in that we have a massive problem on our hands and um, really the pent up frustration in Inch and with the community in County Clare there is because they haven't had much communication but the actual problem is that there's nothing to communicate and I think that's where the far right activists are latching on to in the sense that that, um, you know, we, we're all confused. What is the plan? We have no plan in place. There is no long term plan and we are fire fi- fi- firefighting for the last 15 but months. Is that defensible, though, given the numbers that we've had, not alone with, with about 80,000 coming from Ukraine, but also with the numbers not from Ukraine, but applying for international protection, I think, are quadruple or quintuple what they were three years ago pre-pandemic. But so Not really, because we have had a year and a half to, to try and come up with some sort of plan. And I think one of the problems is the departments aren't really talking to each other about it. So um, it's not really defensible. It, it is understandable that, you know, we have been very generous as a country and in taking people in and no one would dispute that that's the right thing to do. But perhaps it's not the right thing to do to take people in and to have them end up in tents mm. on the streets. Uh, some of that breaking news, by the way, and we're going to get you more from the newsroom on this in a, in a couple of moments, is that news this morning that the blockade, uh, which had been mounted by some residents around the McGowan House Hotel uh, in Inch and County Clare, is apparently to be lifted. Uh, we have a statement from the Fine Gael Senator uh, Martin Conway, who is a senator who's based in County Clare, who says that he's pleased to learn that the protesters are going to say now that they will lift the blockade. He says this will bring to an end almost a week of disruption and protest to the area and which will undoubtedly be welcomed by everyone in the locality. Uh, he says that the blockade had brought a very unwelcome focus to County Clare over the past six days and it highlighted the importance of communication between all stakeholders when accommodating refugees. Uh, he goes on to say, by the way, that although he acknowledges communities' rights to express concerns, it wasn't right that anyone's movements should be restricted, impeded or stopped by any other party. And he sees this move as a very positive sign and a direct result of the engagement that's taken place between community reps, government reps and members of Angarda Shiakona. Um, he says in that statement, John Cunningham, um, that it has brought, it's highlighted the importance of communication between all stakeholders when it comes to accommodating refugees. And this is something of, of an ongoing trend where communities feel like um, suddenly facilities are being used without there being any kind of a heads up and whether there needs to be any advanced negotiation is a separate thing. But how important is that question of communication and why at this point does the government still continue to seem to get it wrong? Well, I suppose that's the really frustrating question because it's the most logical thing in the world to do is to share with the communities what's happening, to share with the communities the timescales and the the choreography of people coming into their communities because when it's worked, it's worked brilliantly. When communities have stepped up and they've welcomed in uh, refugees and migrants and and, and done done a marvellous job. What really is interesting about Inch is that the people who are protesting in Inch initially position themselves as kind of, you know, protesting to protect these poor people who've been put into what is regarded as unsuitable um, accommodation. When in reality we've seen 
the fact that the 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 the, the language with regard to go home, get out of here, okay, was nothing to do with protecting our mind. It was that not in my backyard. And again, ultimately, this is what. Do, do, do you think that that was the case? That there wasn't, or should there be any credence given to this argument that well, they just don't think that an isolated, somewhat derelict chalets on a former hotel. They were absolutely right. But the point is, that's not the issue. I suppose, sorry. The issue is that there's lots of people have been put in places that weren't suitable. We have mm. at the start of this process, there's people put in kind of derelict hotels at the back end of Waterford with no access to any public transport, facilities being really, really poor. But it demonstrates again the fact that we make these grandiose decisions with regard to embracing and bringing people in and not having a proper strategic plan with regard to give, giving them suitable accommodation. Mm. And if the government and if the, 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 the stakeholders involved don't learn from this and understand that they have to negotiate, we're going to have more and more problems. And again, in the papers today, yeah. the concern is that this could get really escalated and violence could get involved and people get really, really agitated. And if the far right get this platform and they kind of see it as an opportunity, only God knows where it might you, end up. You said negotiate there. Do you yeah. think that it is a matter to be negotiated or just a matter where the community is given a timely notification that this is happening? OK, first of all, it's certainly the timely negotiate, the, 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 the timely informing yeah. with regard to what's happening. And if there's an issue and if there's people, if people on the ground have issues, that's when conversation and negotiation takes place. I mean, there's been concerns with regard to some of the, the, the locations where it's all men in their 20s put in a, in a, in a location in a, in a town or a village. OK, so there needs to be intelligent engagement and communication. And if part of that solution is a proper negotiation, of course, it has to be part of it. Mm. Um, we have a tweet, by the way, from uh, Joe O'Brien, who's the Minister of State responsible for integration matters. He, of course, had visited uh, the community um, in Inch and he'd gone down to Ennis on Thursday to meet with the locals to discuss what their concerns were. He says this morning uh, that he welcomes the decision of the residents to remove the blockade. Uh, his meeting with the residents on Thursday in Ennis was an honest, open discussion and I'm pleased that that engagement has helped to bring some improvement to the situation. He looks forward to working with the provider and his officials to develop a programme of education, training and other supports for the people residing in McGowna House. And he looks forward to returning to McGowna in four weeks, he says, as had been agreed um, yeah. with uh, those in the community. Um, that's an interesting note, um, Adrian, that um, that has resulted in there being a programme of education, training and other supports for the people residing there. That would appear to legitimise the concerns of, of those who said that it was just about having vulnerable people in an isolated scenario, that there wasn't any question of them not being welcoming, but that they appear to have raised legitimate concerns about the needs of those being housed there and now they're being met. So mission accomplished almost. A mission accomplished on two fronts in the sense that communication happened and it de-escalated the whole issue, which which is a really, really good sign, even um, taking into account that there were some far right activists latching onto this issue. But um, I mean, the, the concerns were valid and, and they are valid, um, you know, that there needs to be a lot more than just accommodation put in place. So that's what the locals were concerned about. And that's how this whole protest started. However, it was um, all of the coverage and everything, the heat that came with that, that really escalated the issue. And as John said, mm. put Ireland, uh, you know, in, in the spotlight internationally about this. So it's a good outcome. It's a, it's the right outcome. Yeah. Um, and it, and it's right for those that are residing in in uh, the accommodation as well, that they have extra supports too. Yeah. We'll be talking to um, the Clare Bay Senator, uh, Timmy Dooley, uh, in the second hour of the programme. We'll get his assessment of what has been offered uh, to those that are staying in McGowan House and to the community to see whether this is um, a happy solution and indeed whether one that could have been arrived at uh, a few days earlier rather than requiring a blockade to go into six days. Um, going back to the government's uh, preparation for 
um, the housing of um, asylum seekers in general and those seeking international protection. Uh, the front page story of the Sunday Independent, Adrian, um, about how the government um, was effectively offered a lot of the... Um, as have been called this week, floatels, the idea of uh, trying to find some floating accommodation as a short-term, easily imported solution um, for the housing of those seeking international protection. The idea that this was offered to the government last year and they turned it down and said, thanks, but no thanks. And now 12 months on, it is the very solution that the Department of Integration openly says it's looking at. Does that speak to the, the point that there hasn't been a broader joined up thinking or, or was it more legitimate that before the crisis reached the point that it currently is, that the state would focus on solutions on land before looking for something as drastic as boats? I think they would have been nervous, really, to to go so outside the box early on in the in the crisis um, and in the, with the war in Ukraine that they would have been taking on float hotels, as you say, floating mm. accommodation. Like it's a very um, bold move to take, and I think that they just chose not to do it because yeah. there would have been an awful lot of criticism as well about the long term solution for that and the impact for those living mm. offshore um, and there were con- some concerns about um, you know port traffic and things like yeah. that as well but we haven't dealt with the crisis as well as we could have in some ways I mean we've done a lot um, y- you know we've done all we can I suppose yeah. the government will say but um, we can't cope at the moment and so now we have to go back to the drawing board and say right what can we do because the, you know the initial plan here um, according to the Sunday Independent um, says that we could have gotten an extra 22,000 beds, which would have really uh, lightened the load you know, on land, so to speak. Mm. Um, and a lot of these ships that could have been bought by German um, carriers are now being used by other countries. Yeah. So other countries decided to do it and we didn't. Um, so, you know, actually the ships were available because yeah. of the COVID crisis and now ships are getting back yeah, on the, the seas the, the again so we might not actually use. have it yeah. as an option. Um, John, with your, I know you're a former chair of the Immigrant Council of Ireland but it's an interesting debate around whether floating accommodation like this is ever appropriate. I was speaking um, this week to the Chief Executive of the Refugee Council, Nick Henderson and he said that no, that if you base on the experience that's been used in Britain with the particular barges that they've used, he said that accommodation was basically something like Rikers Island and that the facilities on board there would breed exactly the same sort of isolation and ghettoization as you might have in in the most deplorable on land scenarios but it, you could also be talking about better accommodation than that not everything is a barge not everything is basically like an industrial shipping container with loads of like flat bay units on top of it that there there might be some merit for for accommodation like that well first of all we've got to step back and understand the people we're talking about are people who are either escaping abuse war potential death and murder And these are people in need. So first of all, Ireland needs to take great credit for stepping up and saying we're going to do our best. We've done better than most countries with regard to bringing them in. And the question is, what is an acceptable experience from the point of view of where they've come from to where they're going to now? The bottom line is, again, if you could bring a whole dose of cop on and connected thinking, the ship's thing can certainly work as a temporary solution. There's no doubt about it. Okay, and you can make it as good as you. Mm. So instead of, you know, if if it has a capacity for 550, put on 400 and give them more space and and, and, and deck it. But is the danger there the word that you said temporary? Yeah, but then the point is, and that's the point I made initially, is that direct provision was introduced for 15, 18 years ago as a temporary solution to an immediate problem. Mm. And here we are now dealing with the consequences of the most appalling legacy in the Irish society that we haven't dealt with. So the point is then strategically, what are we going to do? We've got this broader housing crisis with regard to just the the domestic market. It's compounded by the the numbers coming in, but we know it's the right thing to do. But who is going to sit down, 
bring the stakeholders together and come up with a solution. And with all the issues we could discuss today, it isn't beyond the wit and the intelligence of the people in the elected officials and the permanent government and the other stakeholders, I think, to find a suitable solution. Um, Camilla has been in touch uh, on Twitter. The hashtag is on the record NT. She says that the scenes in Inch were made worse by the main TV news channel giving voice to a tiny number of protesters who should have been ignored. She has protesters in inverted commas. We have clear international obligations to provide decent accommodation for asylum seekers, but the protesters didn't care about conditions, she says. Uh, one texter to 87 106 says, we can't just blame the government for these failings. Public servants should also be held accountable for the lack of competence and the failures to effectively communicate. Uh, and one person says, the cynical side of me thinks that there is no interest in a long-term immigration plan from the government because they may not be around for the next all. Well, we had this conversation earlier and I mean, this is the problem with politics to some degree in the sense that it's all short term thinking because, you know, you have to think about the next election over mm. the brow of the hill. So, um, you, you know, there big decisions need to be brave and often they're not popular as well. So, you know, we were discussing as well we're a small country and we want to be generous, but we may have limitations on how many we can accommodate. So the debate about um, not that we'd like to do this, but capping numbers um, with a strategy plan on, as John said, bringing people in, but giving them um, a much better quality of life than the one that they're leaving. I mean, people sleeping in tents on yeah. the street is mm-hmm. not acceptable and it, that is not taking care of people coming into our country. Uh, we need to move on but one person is pointing out that there was an opening line a very important opening line in that statement from Joel Ryan the Integration Minister who said that he welcomed the decision of the residents to remove the blockade and that person is taking issue with the idea that it had to be up to the residents to decide to remove a blockade which basically everyone within official Ireland seems to have had some concerns about. Uh, lots more to come as we continue to go through the papers with John Cunningham and Adrian Sweeney when we're back after this. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk. As I said, John Cunningham and Adrian Sweeney still with me to go through the stories that are making uh, the papers this Sunday. Um, unsurprisingly, an awful lot about various things within TV. There is the relationship, or former relationship as it was, I suppose, between uh, Holly Willoughby and Philip Schofield. Uh, but also uh, the appointment, as announced yesterday at around noon, of Patrick Keelty as the host of The Late Late Show. And some question marks raised, Adrian, about how much time he's going to be spending in Ireland to do that job. Yeah, because Patrick Keelty lives in Fulham in London with his wife and two young sons and will be hybrid working and commuting to Ireland for the job. So um, there's a lot of, there's a few uh, columnists in the papers today raising concerns over how uh, that's actually going to pan out Mm. and how tuned in Patrick will be to Irish society um, because, you know, there's a lot of people saying that Tuberty had conversations with people on his radio show, obviously, about everything that was happening day to day. But besides that, it's being in the community and, you know, having the feel for, you know, what's going on with your in the local shop, for example. Uh, Has that been slightly over-egged, though? Maybe, Um, maybe. I mean, it's possible. There's plenty of immigrants who who only listen to the media or radio stations from their their home countries or whatever. And I'm sure he'll be well briefed, obviously, by, by, uh, by his producers and... Um, the full team, etc. I think he'll make it work. I think probably, you know, um, the Late Late Show is actually going to change, like veer away from the more serious side of things as well anyway. And mm. Patrick is really good at that. That's where he comes into his yeah. strength. You know, he's a good interviewer, but he's obviously a comedian as well. Mm. And, you know, he's probably going to bring a little bit of levity to the situation, which will require probably a little bit less research as well. Mm. So, John, thoughts? Well, I think, first of all, 
um, I think it raises a big question about is the Late Late Show fit for purpose and what is fit for purpose? What's required now from the point of view of presenting a kind mm. of a weekend show? It, um, it does always get a bit of a, the whiteboard gets wiped every time there's a new presenter anyway to, to play to their strengths. Yeah, and this is a, a fourth presenter who's different from all the previous ones. So on that basis, I mean, I think some of the coverage is saying that the team and RT are really excited about revisiting and restructuring the show to facilitate mm. that. But I think it's going to be very interesting to see what's going to happen. I think, first of all, I think the process of replacing Ryan became comical. I think I was at one stage the only person not being suggested to take over the... the, the <laughs> was the, Gavin the, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Famously left out of all the bookmakers' yeah, yeah. odds. Well, look, you know, get yeah. over yourself. But, um, <laughs> but so I think it's interesting. Again, I think it raised this whole question about television and terrestrial television yeah. and how people are watching things. Because in our house, I mean, there's very little mainstream television we're watching in our house. It's going to be Netflix or streaming or whatever else. Mm. So... I think they've really have the potential of an opportunity to do something really quite dramatic to really kind of bring it back into yeah. I- into focus because you know when you consider that you know going back to the great gay barn and all the way through it has changed and you know I think the the toy show is probably the highlight of the whole thing now with regard mm. to just it's it's delivering its impact and its priority so I think the Patrick Hughes thing is going to be fascinating how he's going to commute for the day and a half or the two days and make it work, I think is going to be really interesting. And well, I think that, you know, you're right. Yeah. They put the, put the supports around them. It's the flagship national talk show yeah. on television. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens. This is the fascinating thing, because now maybe I'm coming at this with too much of a, the mindset of someone who also works in TV. And by the way, streaming services are all well and good, but your family should absolutely be watching the fine programming on Virgin Media Television. Um, <laughs> other channels are available, but don't watch them. I'll bring that uh, home they're, they're, they're crap, don't worry. Um, what I think Ryan Tuberty has done quite well, and I don't think it's been appreciated by people who don't pay as much attention to the formatting of television, is that he's made more of an art of pre-recording items if a guest is only available at a time that isn't a Friday evening. So uh, where once upon a time it was very novel to have a pre-recorded item on the late late. Now Ryan Tuberty has mastered the art where if somebody is only available, hypothetically, on a Tuesday afternoon, he will go and get the studio filled and he'll go and get, get some other runners and researchers from around Montrose and he'll have them in the audience so that you get the live and real-time applause and he'll make sure he's wearing the same suit as he'll wear the following Friday night and he'll pre-record the entire item as if it were live on the night and it might reduce the experience for the audience sitting in the studio if they're just watching something on videotape but it means that those watching it on the other end of a TV screen get the best possible TV product they can but that's something you can only do if you are actually available to do the pre-records on a Monday night or a Tuesday afternoon or whatever, and if Patrick Keelty is only perhaps coming into the country on a Thursday morning ahead of a Friday night, it's not an option that's available to him. That is going to pose a huge challenge, I imagine. And a show is only as good as its uh, guests, really. Mm. And I mean, this is a chat show and you really need, as John says, putting his hands up there, um, you really need good quality guests and good quality guests are obviously in high demand and Friday night is not the um, prime time that they're going to be free mm. all of the time. So that's, that is going to be a massive challenge and it may reduce the pool in terms of the, the quality of the guests that are going to be available to the late late. But I'm sure they're going to try and mm-hmm. you've raised it for them now, Gavin, so I'm sure they're going to try and work <laughs> around, work around it. Um, you can have that consultancy for free. Yes, yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, some texture says to 087-1400-106, that's the number for your WhatsApps. Uh, Keelty, out of touch, sure to be the same tired out group of guests turned around every four weeks. That's... At least give the guy a chance. Let's see who he's able to drum up. Um, still lots of texts coming in about what's going on. And Claire, um, I don't want to sound right wing, says one texter, but this can't go on indefinitely. Little Ireland cannot solve all global problems. We are swamped, says that texter. 
Someone else says, of course there is likely to be little or no joined up thinking government departments because the very same civil servants work nine to five and no doubt were not at work yesterday or today. Not sure what that's relevant to an ongoing situation in Inch. But anyway, this person says, as long as civil servants can't even be, can't even be held accountable, then nothing will change. Uh, and one person says, by the way, and this is brilliant and it just speaks so highly to the quality of listener we have. A former naval architect has been in touch to talk about Flotels. John is sitting up now with great interest. This person says that with regards to using floating accommodations, you can't just rock up with a cruise ship and expect it to run like a land-based hotel. You would still need to find qualified marine mechanics and ships qualified mechanical systems engineers to run the ship on a daily basis because ships' mechanical systems are complex beasts. They're not something that your average tradesperson on the streets of Dublin will be capable of maintaining. So, long story short, not as easy as just having someone in. Someone else has texted in, and this is not for the first time, um, two words about the Late Late Show host, Anton Savage uh, and my producer who ordinarily works in the Anton Savage show uh, News Talk Sunday morning Saturday mornings from 9 to 11 has stressed that that's not just her typing Anton's name uh, into the box I remain to be convinced uh, but we'll see but to be fair not for the first time that somebody's texted in to go Anton Savage um, Kieran Cuddy he has also been known to text in his own name uh, I'm joking but someone else has done it um, there is of course lots also around the papers and I, I openly say this not knowing how exercised either of you are Uh, about the departure of Philip Schofield from this morning. Now, I'm going to make eye contact with either of you and you're both somewhat rolling your eyes. Adrian, slightly less so. So you grab the hot potato on this one. I mean, I don't watch it. (laughs) So... (laughs) I have very little to say in the topic, but um, obviously he has been 18 years at the helm of ITV's uh, This Morning Show mm. and has gone out, um, I suppose, in a blaze of um, drama. Yeah. And, uh, f- you know, his former co-host and best friend, Holly Willoughby, um, mm. no Just longer speaking. Form, former applies to being best friend as well. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. No longer speaking. I mean, it's... Um, I suppose they they were the kind of darlings of morning mm. television in the UK and you know it's interesting to see how it's gone however like 18 years it was never going to end well you can't yeah. keep going forever in some respects but um, you know it's I suppose it's big news to a lot of people but at some yeah. stage something was going to have yeah. to change 18 years is 1.3 tuberties if that's yeah. your manner of measuring things but, 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 but also there's that sense again as you know that when the talent becomes the news it becomes mm. an issue alright and you know ultimately 18 years, I don't think, is a long time and you'd hope that this is going to lead to maybe another opportunity for some other presenters to get on the couch and move ahead. But it is astonishing still in the world we're living in now that in even the Irish context, it's getting so much coverage. Yeah. So I think that, you know, we'll wish him well and I'm sure he's his pension sorted at this stage now so he has nothing too much to worry about. But again, I think it goes back to this, the, the, the Patrick Hill thing. We've got to also acknowledge that what has been created in the Late Late Show is globally one of the most successful talk show hosts, talk shows mm. in the world and between Gay, Pat and Ryan, right. you know, mm. they've done an extraordinary job and they've given huge service. Mm. So I think that needs to be acknowledged. And it's, we give, we give, the we, longest running talk yeah. show in the world, isn't yeah. that correct? Yeah, yeah. 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 so. Um, by the way, the reason why it's getting so much coverage in the Irish papers is because so many people watch this morning on Virgin Media One. Every weekday morning between 10 and half 12. Other channels are available, of course, like Virgin Media's <laughs> 2, 3 and 4. I know other ones because the other ones are all rubbish. Um, there is actually, we, we've run out of time, but I'm going to give just flag this with you that we're going to raise it after the ad break about ChatGPT and its ability to pass Leaving Cert Honours English uh, with commensurate needs. But we're going to be talking to Daniel Murray of the Business Post about an interesting piece he's got today about dull committees and how they're being stifled by new legal advice. That's coming up after the break. Don't go away. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.
still lots more to come as we go through the papers with John Cunningham and Adrian Sweeney. But first, we're joined on the line uh, by Daniel Murray, who's political correspondent with the Business Post. Daniel has a very interesting piece um, in today's paper about um, dull committees, which, you know, those of us who work in journalism or even those of us who watch news bulletins, you will often see high profile people being hauled in and, and getting a good grilling at Oireachtas committees. They may be the most famous examples being Angela Kerens and then John Delaney and the grilling that one got meant that the other didn't get quite the grilling. Uh, but Dan, you're reporting quite extensively today about the impact of legal advice that largely follows on from the Angela Kerens incident four years ago and what that's doing to Dáil committees today. Tell us more. Yes, so um, as you say, Gavin, Oireachtas committees regularly call in witnesses as part of their work, both as a kind of direct connection between the Oireachtas and, and the outside world and as a means of democratic accountability for issues that relate to the, the policy areas of those committees. And in 2014, Angela Cairns, the former chief executive of the charity Rehab, appeared in front of the Public Accounts Committee, which you'll remember back then was populated with some of the most high-profile inquisitors in the Dáil, such as Mary Lou MacDonald and, and Shane. Ross. Um, and Karen's experience at the committee in 2014 was a gruelling one, um, where she was grilled on her salary and various aspects of the charity's finances in a manner which she would later come to say amounted to a, a witch hunt on her. Um, Karen's then took a case against the Public Accounts Committee and many at the time thought it would amount to nothing um, because the principle of absolute privilege where words spoken by members of the Oireachtas in the Dáil or Shannon or committees are protected from litigation. Um, mm. But what the Supreme Court ruled in 2019 was that while the individual utterances of committee members could not be litigated, uh, the behaviour and actions of the committee as a whole could be the subject of litigation if the committee acted outside of its terms of reference or the parameters um, that had been detailed in the invitation that that goes out to witnesses. So what what does that mean then in practice, Daniel? So if individual utterances are still okay, but the general behaviour of committees as a whole, does that mean then that committees are being told they have to basically all get on the same bus beforehand and figure out where they're going to go? And is that a case then of wrangling cats that it's impossible to do and then committees find themselves unable to do anything? Well, that was part of the work of what the Houses, the Oireachtas uh, and maybe many Adal members tried to figure out in the aftermath of the case. And they set up a working group to, to look at exactly that. And the standing orders of the Oireachtas were changed to make it much more difficult and put much more restrictions around how witnesses could be invited in, the terms of reference of, of committees and more constraints kind of put on uh, the type of questioning that could be put on them. And a lot of this responsibility lies with the chair uh, of of the committee who, as part of those new standing orders, are really given quite intense briefs uh, about the limits uh, of what they can do. And as a number of chairs speaking to me anonymously in the, in the Business Post today have said, um, there's been a chilling effect on their work uh, and the ability and the effectiveness of committees to hold witnesses to account uh, as a result. Does that mean, though, that the chilling effect could be overcome? as you say, if committee members were all on the same page beforehand and they knew that they were going to stick precisely to the terms of the invitation and that it should be possible if everyone pulls in the same direction to get over this? Or or is it actually just impossible to do so? No, absolutely. It it is possible to get over. But the the fact that there are so, there's a a much lengthier procedure in actually getting people in and far more conditions around that in the first place means that there's a conservative approach taken to both the invitation of witnesses and the nature of what can be done in committees um, altogether. So in some ways, what chairs were saying to me is that it's it's not even just the legal effect, it's actually a cultural effect inside in committees as more power has moved to both the 
staff of the Houses of the Oireachtas and to the legal team of the Houses of the Oireachtas, um, which has expanded actually from a team of four back in 2011, uh, around the time when the Angela Cairns uh, committee took place, to 33 um, lawyers now inside in that office. And they play a much more uh, expansive role in uh, telling uh, committee chairs and committee members what they can and can't ask and who they can and can't invite in. So does then does that mean that, um, do we get the impression from this, and final question for you, Daniel, thanks again for joining us this morning, that the, the members feel like the uh, Oireachtas legal team are being overtly cautious or is it just merely the case that now they, they, they all accept the, the rationale behind the legal advice but they're just finding it very difficult to work within it? I think the feeling amongst a, a number of chairs is that it, it, it is in the nature uh, of the staff of the Europtis and of the lawyers to be overtly cautious uh, on these issues. One chair described it to me as being fitted with a straitjacket, uh, and another one said that a lot of the work they're doing is being hampered by overreach uh, of the Office of Parliamentary Legal Advisors. Now, the OPLA, the Office of Parliamentary Legal Advisors, did come back to me and said that it only offers legal advice uh, when it is asked to do so by committees, but of course there are clerks uh, which are staff of the Houses of the Oireachtas that, that sit within these committees uh, and one chair said to me that they are really uh, deciding that legal advice is needed on far more uh, of, of committee work and yeah. therefore legal advice is being brought in uh, an awful lot more and it's more it, that, that committees are being told as much what they can't do um, than what they can do and, and this is having a kind of a dampening effect on, on committee's work. Uh, fascinating stuff. Daniel Murray, thank you for talking us through all of that. That's on page 13 today ironically page 13 of the business post Daniel Murray is a political correspondent with the business post Daniel thank you for joining us this morning on On The Record that brings us to 11.47 one tweeter by the way Derek gets in touch about Patrick Keelty and his appointment to the Late Late he says that Patrick Keelty being based in London might give the Late Late an opportunity to interview A-listers who might be available in London during the week but might not actually be coming to Ireland because the uh, the lack of A-listers is an issue says Derek you have to transport the studio though that's the only problem yeah well, he's, he's been. Didn't Ryan go to New York a couple of times to go and talk to um, Hillary Clinton, or he went and visited her in Belfast? So, Fair, yeah. if if you accept the premise that it doesn't all have to be done in the studio environment, maybe he'll have some luxury. Um, doesn't the Graham Norton show? I think is is always filmed on a, a Wednesday evening because it's slightly easier to get people mm. on a Wednesday even than on a Friday, and that's London. Uh, so maybe that's what's going on there. Um, let's talk briefly for a few minutes because there is a common theme across some papers about Sinn Fein, not least about uh, its performance in the local elections. Although here is uh, Sinn Fein. Stormont leader Michelle O'Neill talking up their victory in the local elections. We said that we were committed to restoring the executive. We said that we were committed to working with others. We said that we're for civility and maturity in politics. We said we're for inclusiveness. And the public endorsed that message. The public want progressive, positive leadership. They want us to tell them what we're for. They want us to tell them what we're going to do. And that's what we did in this election. And that's what the public have endorsed. That's Michelle O'Neill speaking to the BBC uh, in their coverage of the Northern Ireland local elections. We'll be speaking more about the local elections in Northern Ireland with Alex Kane and David McCann uh, in the second hour of the programme. But I play that because there is, as I say, a common theme um, in a piece in the Sunday Times by Conor Lenahan about um, Mary Lou Macdonald and how she's rising above her rivals in standing up for what she believes in. Um, and also another piece in the Business Post about Sinn Féin looking likely to approve a reformed special criminal court. And w- when I put this to you during the ad break, John, you pointed out that this was more evidence, as you see it, of an inexorable Sinn Féin march towards the middle ground. I think it is. And I think the, 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 the special criminal court is really quite fascinating to see that they made a very deliberate shift and change to say, we will support on the basis of these these reform uh, proposals being put in place. But it's quite clear that watching 
the narrative around Sinn Féin is that they have this, I think we've all acknowledged this, they are strategic geniuses. They're absolutely connected to each other with regard to the messaging that they've got. I mean, there's very little they say. I mean, I've heard Mary Lou Macdonald deliver her stump speech with regard to the strategy going forward. And there's nothing you disagree with with regard to what they have to say. But they've yet to fundamentally explain how they're going to pay for it. OK. And on that basis, it's very easy to be the hurl on the ditch. So I think that 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 they certainly are in a place where they're finding that centre ground. So I think, you know, as middle class participants, we're all living in fear of potentially having your pensions taxed at 70 percent, second properties, wealth taxes and everything else. Mm. But the reality is they haven't nailed their colours to any mast. And, you know, at this stage now, it's easy to do the talk. And I think as it gets nearer to the election, I think it's maybe it's when the real discussion, and real debate will take place. Yeah, the piece uh, by Michael Brennan on page six of the Business Post says that points out that Sinn Féin was once an ardent uh, opponent of the Special Criminal Court, which, of course, is, is partly because the Special Criminal Court was created to try subversive paramilitaries and Sinn Féin historically was supportive of them. Um, it has uh, abstained from the annual dull vote on renewing the Special Criminal Court for the past two years. But party sources have told the Business Post now that it could support it for the first time if sufficient reforms are contained in a soon to be published independent review. The party stance has come under further scrutiny in recent months following the appearance there of Jonathan Dowdell, the former Sinn Féin councillor, as a state witness in the trial um, of Jerry Hutch. Um, do you see this, Adrian, as, as another sign of, of Sinn Féin maybe discarding some of its previous stances to try and come closer and closer to the centre to win over voters who might see themselves as reasonable, air quotes? They have a very clear strategy on what they're doing and they're executing it very well. Um, I mean, Mary Lou has always been known as very soundbite savvy, but it's about backing up what you say with the figures and the plans about how you're going to execute them. And that's where the questions lie. But I suppose um, they're gaining so much ground because they're not saying anything that is too um, dramatic, Mm. so to speak. And, you know, there's an open goal there for them in some sense with the younger voters, with um, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael having not solved any housing crisis and we were speaking about you know young people in their 20s for example you know they've, they can't buy homes etc mm. so they are exercised and they're going to get out and they're going to vote um uh, well, a lot of them will vote in favour of Sinn Féin because there's also the lack of memory about what had happened during the Troubles but, as well. well. This is something that's regularly mentioned and I don't know whether it's a lack of memory so much as treating it as bygones that, you know, we, we had ceasefire in, in the run up to the Good Friday Agreement. So we've had peace, relatively speaking, in Northern Ireland for as long as the troubles were ever active. So it's not just of a question of maybe of having no memory of growing up in them, but just agreeing that it's the past. Now. Yeah, I think that's fair as well. And that's why we have these peace agreements as well. But it is easier to take some, you know, it, it, it's you view Sinn Féin through a different lens if you didn't have any experience yeah. of, of what had happened in the North. So um, they're, they're basically vacuuming up the votes that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are losing because of the housing crisis. And mm. um, they're coming out with the right sound bites yeah. and the right strategies. Uh, vacuuming up a lot of uh, unspent votes as well in Northern Ireland, which we will discuss with David and Alex uh, in the second hour of the programme. Um, a couple of other bits and pieces that I wanted to get to before we run out of time. Um, a piece on page 11 of the Mail on Sunday today that the much vaunted Children's Hospital which I think when it was originally mentioned John I think that the, the talk was that it was going to be built in 2011 albeit on a different side than it ultimately ended up being and that it would be open for patients at the tail end of 2014 we're now told that it could be 2025 before it's open and God knows how much it'll cost by then too I have a very simple view at the moment I've been down I'm, I'm, in, I'm on the, the board of IMA and we have a fabulous view from IMA to the hospital okay? yes so BAM as a contractor is building an absolutely spectacular and unbelievable hospital. All right. And when it's finished, it'll be a world class children's hospital, best in the world. All right. 
what's hard to comprehend is just the now we all know about the, the, the cost of living crisis. We know what's happening with the guard about getting access to staff and the cost of materials. OK, but it strikes me that there's maybe some more fundamental issues that need to be addressed. And I'd love to see all the stakeholders in all the different departments. We obviously got the Department of Health, the Department of Finance, the Department of the Taoiseach. They're all stakeholders in the process. Mm. And it strikes me that there are issues that need to be overcome and they all need to get in the room together and resolve them. But ultimately, the country, I mean, I think we will we will all have a different view as to the location. That whole debate at the time yeah. was, was really going to really mm. hugely frustrate. But, yeah, but the but ship it, sailed now. Yeah, well, it, it, it is yeah. what it is and we are where we are, OK? And there's no point in saying, well, I wouldn't start here. Mm. We're going to end up with a stunning hospital, OK? And if yeah. it takes 25 to get it right, one, if it could be done quicker, well and good. But are the stakeholders talking? Are there issues that can be resolved? Because at the end of the day, this is one of those huge infrastructure pro- projects that the current government unfortunately has failed to deal with with regard to so many other things. This is one that when they tick this box, it'll be a great achievement. And I think we're going to end up with something that is absolutely mm-hmm. world class. And between all of them, you think they have the, both the wit and the intelligence and the foresight to fix whatever problems mm. need to be fixed. Or at least, or at least maybe to take the time to, to get it right, at least. Uh, as I gave the heads up, I did want to discuss the prospect of ChatGPT uh, getting a decent honour uh, in Leaving Cert English. Um, Adrian, I- I'm going to uh, take a stab that you uh, were probably a fabulous English student uh, in second level and that you got a very decent uh, English Leaving Cert. Not awful. Do you, do you feel like it's slightly undermined by ChatGPT being able to get the same grade in a matter of seconds? I do. <laughs> <laughs> I feel less uh, proud about it now. But, the, you know, what this poses is a massive threat to continuous assessment. And that's Mm. a huge worry for students now going forward because there's absolutely no way of policing this. There are some ways that um, you can can put a chat. I don't know if you've used it yet. I've used it. It's frightening. You can Mm. put in a topic and then a whole essay is just generated before your eyes. Now, if you do nothing with that essay and you submit that, that can be run through, I believe. I'm not a tech person. Software programs that will say that was automatically generated. Mm. But if you just put a few little tweaks on that, then there's absolutely no way of telling where that came from. And so really, you know, the Department of Education is up against it because how are you then going to police continuous Yeah, actually, I genuinely hadn't even considered that bit, John, to finish because it, it, particularly with the junior cert being so remodelled now, the part of the grade will even sort of depend on, on homework or essays that you submit in the course of a year. Yeah, Just well, get well, to do well, it. I was one of those, as a 56-year-old man, I was a bit slow to it and I sat down last week and signed up and went through it. And what it struck me was the government needs to stop right now and completely review the education process because this is only going to grow and evolve and become much more complex. And the bottom line is we know that learning by rote is not what's required. Mm. We have for years said Ireland's greatest advantage of this phenomenal educational system, right? And I believe at this stage now in real terms we've slipped behind. There's other best practice. And this to me now is the prompt to say for the Department of Education and the Taoiseach to look at this strategically and say what's fit for purpose, what's best practice and let's embrace this and get it right. Uh, Let us know your thoughts. 087-1400-106 is the number for your WhatsApps, but in the meantime, we are completely done with our review of the papers. Thank you both very much for coming in this morning. John Cunningham, former chair of the Immigrant Council of Ireland, and as he said, uh, current director of the Irish Museum of Modern Art, and Adrian Sweeney, who's the director of the Paracourt Springs Health Farm. Thank you both very much for joining us. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.